Content, information, and opinions expressed during the related show are those of the show personalities and guest alone, and not those of Vic Canellis Media Group, its parent, affiliates, or stations. VCMG Live is not responsible for any content, information, or opinions expressed. User bears full responsibility for their reliance on such content, information, or opinions. Once again, it's time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Live, Ira's in studio, and usually when Ira's not here on a Monday, it's because he was, you know, went to three or four. That was not the case um, this weekend. You want, you had a couple of plans, things you were kicking around, but you ended up hanging out here, and it was good because you ended up getting a great slate of uh, football games on Saturday. I know, everyone's criticizing me about traveling, but I started at 12 o'clock with my four screens going, and I stayed, had the four screens all night, and it was like, I was thinking even, should I go to Georgia Tech Miami, and then so Sunday football, I was either going to go to the Dolphins game, and I said, I really want to see Steelers-Ravens, and it was that was a smart move because watching Steelers-Ravens on TV was certainly awesome, and I loved watching that game. So I did not go anywhere, no base, but it was with baseball starting and with all the football games on. I thought, actually, I thought it was a good slate of college football games. I love this, and I love that this is the last year I can watch four games of college football. You know, there will be four playoff teams where every game matters. I, I'm not looking forward to the 12-team playoff. I love this 14-team playoff. We're going to have a great guest here in just a minute, Jean-Jacques Taylor. He wrote a book, but everything that he's talking about is really very timely with what's going on in the college football landscape. He was embedded into the Jackson State football program last year and wrote a book called Coach Prime. So it was uh, so he wrote it on he so he wrote it on he wrote a book called about Coach Prime to of course Deion Sanders at the University of Colorado. Yeah, so hopefully we have him uh, on here in just a minute. Don't forget, of course, you can go to Ira on Sports across social media. You can get Ira anywhere you go, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. He's got you covered at Ira on Sports. Just a minute or so until we get uh, we get over here to Jean-Jacques. Baseball, we could talk about for just a second as we look at this. Right now, Phillies on top of the Braves, 3 to nothing. I don't think anybody predicted what was going to happen here in the divisional rounds, Ira, and it looks like... Some teams that we thought were going to be really good are, you know, stumbling out of the gate. And that's to be expected sometimes with a five-day layoff in between games. We talk, When they started this wild card thing with the best out of three games, they're like, what a disadvantage these wild card teams have. They're going to be they're going to be horrendous. They're not going to have the rotation set. Everything's going to be a mess. But look what's happening. The, the Phillies, they these teams, that both the wild cards were, were blowouts. I mean, the four series were all 2-0 out of the best of three. And now these three of the four teams are coming right like gangbusters into the playoffs and winning the games. This is just... You know, this is what I mean. The Philadelphia they beat Atlanta three nothing. They're up now again, and uh, Arizona comes and, and they beat the Dodgers. <laughs> Arizona wins their wild card game. Then they play the Dodgers, and the first thing they play, okay, Clayton Kershaw. And I had I had that game on, and I'm like, what am I? What is going on? Is Kershaw? I uh, gave up six runs before he got his first out. It was the worst outing, one of the worst outings in the history of baseball. And the that game was over. You know, we're watching a game. It was like eleven to two. So at this situation, it was like again, we're in a series right now. Philadelphia, if they win tonight. They're going to be 2-0 over Atlanta. This is not best of seven. It's best of five. I mean, this is what we hope the NBA and the NHL do. Like that's it's sort of and so if they win tonight, then they go back to Philadelphia. And you look at the prices of these tickets. Like everyone else in Houston, it's like twenty dollars, the cheapest. Everyone else is fifteen dollars or thirty dollars. Three hundred and fifty dollars yeah. in Philadelphia. Philly like, supports their teams. This is this Philadelphia ticket is for baseball and now not for basketball and not for well hockey. There's hockey, but for 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 now football because I was there at a football game last year and it's through the roof. But for 
for baseball. I don't think I've ever seen prices like this for for games. The, the Phillies have the Philadelphia fans for the Phillies have become like sports town. Like they're taking the title away from Boston, New York, everything else. They love their team and that and they they're loud. Again, that's they said it's an SEC crowd there for the games. So that's really what makes it. I mean, they beat Miami four one and seven one. I think everyone expected the Phillies to to win easily on those two games. But Arizona going to Milwaukee, going into Milwaukee and winning six three five two, and then setting themselves up now. I mean, that's again to be over the Dodgers. So uh, you like you like the Diamondbacks. You've been talking about them all year. I, I love the team, and I like the way that these pitching matchups set up. Going into Game One, we'll talk about the, the Phillies series. You're looking at Spencer Strider who is a fantastic strikeout pitcher. This year, he wasn't a great pitcher. Just ERA was way up. His win-losses were, were, were poor. And all I knew was that if they won game one, now you're going to see Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola in game two and three, and they could be they could sweep now. Sweep the Braves, who are maybe the best lineup I've ever seen. It really is how these matchups shake up. And then with the Diamondbacks, it was the same situation. And we've seen playoff Kershaw not be very good. And what happens? Gets shelled in game one. And now we have... The Diamondbacks' ace, former Marlins, Zach Gallen, going against a rookie starting for the Dodgers. We can see two 2-0 two and o situations from massive underdogs after two games. It's just crazy how it's panned out. But this is why we, we say it all year, just get in the playoffs in baseball. It's really the, 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 the true sport. Baseball and hockey, get in. Because the sixth seed or the eighth seed is just as good as the one seed once, once you get down to playing these games. Right. It is pretty amazing. And, and I'll tell you what, it's just... I am shocked as, as someone who's gone to tons of Dodger games just to see the Dodgers, that just destruction. And it's like they can't even, and I think the fans are like, you can't even get in your series. And that's where this advantage, I mean, even just the, it's almost like you want to be in the wildcard games because if you're in the wildcard games, it just gives you that momentum. And the layoff in baseball is just, it's not a benefit. It's clearly not a benefit to have this layoff. Derek Jeter was on Fox Sports saying he bet against both of them because of that layoff. And it just gets you out of your, your but they're used to playing every day. You know, Freddie Freeman took one day off this year. Now he goes down and sits for a week. Just just kind of not the same. Want to hop into football here? Uh, see if we can maybe get Jean-Jacques uh, Jean on in a little bit? Yes. Start with, start with the NFL. So I was a little nervous for Sunday night football for multiple reasons. One, I'm a Giants fan, and I, and I dislike the Cowboys. But most importantly, I wanted it to be a good game. And I was afraid that this was going to be an absolute stampede, San Francisco over Dallas. And my, my worries were soon founded because— this was a, a dismantling, Ira, and people are talking like Dallas is as good as any team in the league. After this game, they are light years behind a team like San Francisco. And, you know, you're saying that Zach's taking a lot of blame for it. I am too, but Dak didn't allow 42 points. He threw some bad picks, but to me, this is more on the Cowboys' defense, and it really just shows how much better San Francisco is than everyone else in the league. I'm going to say, with a caveat, Philadelphia. I watch the NFL. It's like, uh, this is my story. It's like if you watch the UFC, and you get up at 3 in the afternoon, and they have prelim after prelim, and you're watching fight after fight after fight, and you watch it for eight hours. And then it's like 11.30 night, and when Khabib, who I think is the greatest UFC fighter I've ever seen by far, he wrestles. And he gets on, and he just wins, like, you know, in a, in a minute. Mm -hmm. And just, just unbeatable. And you're like... When I was watching, nobody could ever beat him. And I think when I watched San Francisco and Philadelphia compared to watching the Steelers and watching all these other games, and you're watching these, they play a different game. They are so much better than every other team. It's ridiculous. And Dallas, it's just, it's San Francisco, as we talked about before, has so many weapons on offense, and they're so great on defense. And I want to say this, Micah Parsons. Now, I, it's one of those things where I said when Micah was drafted, I said, I don't think he's going to be the superstar. And he, he's become a superstar, not denying it. But then I hear he's compared to Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence. 
Lawrence no Taylor, which is way. ridiculous. Yeah. And if nobody, you don't have to go back on YouTube and go to Lawrence Taylor. Go, there's a thing, a movie called The Water Boy. Go Google that. <laughs> and that that that's Lawrence Taylor. Bobby Boucher. Bobby Boucher. <laughs> because he literally, the quarterback would take the snap and then start sprinting to the left because Lawrence would be coming on from the other side. He was so big, so fast, so strong, could get around everyone. There's no way. And Micah Parsons yesterday, Micah Parsons had one tackle. One tackle the entire game. And if you wanted to look at someone who's better, Fred Warner his, and, Drew, and Greenlaw for San Francisco, Warner had five tackles and a sack and a tackle for loss. Greenlaw had five tackles, a sack and a tackle for loss. And they're on every play. They're everywhere, and they're hitting hard, and they're amazing. And if you want to watch J.J. Watt, and you want to Rocking Smith for the, for the Ravens, like uh, T.J. Watt, I mean, again, linebackers all over the place. Micah is just getting pushed around. And now I'm saying it's not all his fault, but if you're comparing him to Lawrence, don't not compare, compare him to Lawrence Taylor if that's what the situation is. One thing I don't get, what is Dan Quinn doing lining him up over Trent Williams? Trent Williams is the best left tackle in the league. Most of Micah Parsons' looks are from the other side of, of the line. He's usually playing on, on the left, attacking the right tackle. Why would you change this up, especially when this is the best left tackle in the league? And at halftime, when he's done nothing, you don't make an adjustment. You just have him keep running into to Trent Williams. Uh, it was just a, a poor game plan. For, you know, on top of getting just looking like the worst team, they got out coached in every single aspect by Kyle Shannon and his team. Yeah, that's the question I would like to ask John Jocks if we get him on here, because I think that's the one team, I'll tell you what, I could I could see Coach Prime coaching Dallas. Like I could see some major because this is I mean when Dallas was riding high, but now they have two losses. Remember they lost to Arizona. Now mm-hmm. they have losses to San Francisco. And if they they're going to be go on the road in the playoffs, and they're going to have to say now they're going to have to beat San Francisco and Philadelphia to go to the Super Bowl. I don't think it's going to work. I mean in this game, I just give you some stats. Total yards. San Francisco had 421. Dallas had didn't even have 200 yards for the game. Um, San Francisco had 170 yards rushing. Um, Dak was 14 for 24 for 153 yards, three interceptions and three sacks, and. And uh, Purdy for San Francisco, he had 250 yards and four touchdowns. I mean, there's got to be a point where he has never lost a game. They've won like 10 games in a row. And Kittle, again, Kittle had three touchdown passes, 67 yards. And I just think they can, as anything, they can use McCafferty. They can use Debo Samuel. They can bring in Ayuka's open. It's like they are, they just, their plays are great. Whenever they saw, when Dallas... I, and I think this is what Dallas is. Dallas is a front runner. When they're up 40 to nothing over yes. New England, they look great. They, you put them on the Giants and they're up 40 to nothing, they're, they're going to look great. They are totally the front runners. They are not willing. And as this game, I said, boy, this game was close. I mean, it was like 10, it was like 7 nothing. And there was a point where, you know, there was, I felt there was, Dallas had that fumble and then McCafferty was about to score. He fumbles in the end zone and you're like, okay, they're still in this game. They're still whatever. But when San Francisco ran that flea flicker and I saw Kyle Shannon and said, well, I was watching football earlier and I saw Detroit run and it didn't really look good. And I think I should try it. I think that was a nice, honest play. And then Dallas, you know, the, the pass to Turpin was good. So that made it a 14-7. But then uh, the McCaffrey ran it in 21-7 before at halftime. And then when they came out, it's like, I don't think Dallas in the second half is like, okay, you are just lucky to be in this game at 21-7. Lucky to be even close. But they come out the second half, and Dallas looked like the team, like they were up 21-7 because they just they just did nothing that whole third quarter. I mean, remember, they pulled Purdy, the starters out by the beginning of the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. that whole fourth quarter was totally blown out and Dak was with the interceptions and the turnovers and the, it's just a mess but I really criticize again the I I thought San Francisco was going to win this game but I did not think San Francisco but Dallas now this is what Dallas is if you get they're the bully that gets punched in the nose yeah in hindsight the line being two and a half is ridiculous it should have been a 10 point line what you said is accurate though it's easy to beat the Giants the Jets and the Patriots the Patriots and the Giants may be the two worst offenses in the last decade it's easy to beat teams like that. The Giants now, we've seen them get crushed by everyone they've played, essentially. So, like, I can't give that much stock to what the, the Cowboys did. They got beat by 
Arizona, and then they got crushed by the best team, I think, in the NFC. I don't know. I mean, Michael Irvin is on national radio today saying they need a, a, a big wide receiver. They need a, a bigger-bodied wide receiver than CeeDee Lamb. Is that going to—that's going to get—have you beat San Francisco, a big wide receiver? Brandon Cooks has excelled at every stop in his career with guys that are— marginally in the league at starting quarterback. They should be backups. Now he's got Dak Prescott, and this guy is getting two targets a game. This is a, a, a top-down problem, and to me, it starts with McCarthy. You're supposed to be an offensive genius. You don't look good. Dan Quinn's supposed to be the best defensive mind in the league. They looked terrible yesterday. I think that there's a lot more problems in Dallas than we're seeing, and I'd like to see them go against a Miami, a team like that. You think they're going to be able to slow Miami down? I don't. No. So... As far as the NFC goes, yeah, they might be the third best team, but that's not really that great. I mean, I, I can see the Rams beating them. Or the Lions. The, the, the Lions could beat them for sure. So all these Cowboy fans that were hoisting, you know, the trophy after beating the Giants 40 nothing, I think you got a reality check. Certainly, certainly. One thing, it's got so annoying to have George Kittle in fantasy. I mean, this guy, it's either one target or three touchdowns. There's nothing in between with George Kittle. It's just how Shanahan's going to use him that day. Speaking of the Giants, they traveled to, to Miami. Well, at least some of them did, I guess. Another horrible game from the Giants. Miami had some flashes of of looking brilliant again. And then also, you know, I, I don't know if they took their foot off the gas completely or they just were, you know, getting held up by the Giants' D maybe. Regardless, another huge win for Miami. Good for them. And they're setting records offensively. Yeah, 31-16. They were a 12-and-a-half-point favorite going to the game. Uh, two is to Waddle for a touchdown. Giants missed a field goal. But then Archain comes in, fumbles the ball. But, of course, Archain's someone who can fumble the ball then come back and run for 76 yards. He's so fast. Every one time you see him, you're like, I cannot believe I did not draft him in fantasy. But what a great running back. But they just the, 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 the ability for the Finns to keep running the ball is just amazing. They had 222 yards rushing. The Giants. 85. They had 524. This is like college numbers, 524 yeah. yards. Um, and then, you know, Tua threw a pick six at halftime. Again, they, they are so explosive that they can make these mistakes and get away with it. I'm going to say this one thing, though. I think as the season gets on, Tua is getting a little, I would say, not reckless, but he's not as careful because no, he, he, for sure. he got sacked in this game. There was a sack. He got hit twice, too. And I think and he ran one time and he didn't really slide immediately. And I'm like, OK, you know, because if Tua goes down, this is not get this. He is totally responsible. Like if I was the Dolphins, I would say, too, if you're going to get sacked, just put the ball on the ground. I'd rather have a turnover. I'd rather have a big six. I'd rather have something. You cannot get hurt. And I just think that as, as he's now he hasn't any injuries, no concussions, nothing serious at all. He's made it through five games. But don't get don't relax. Because, as you know, one hard hit is going to just end this whole thing that the Dolphins are working on. So that's one thing I know. So he, was, he had 308 yards, two touchdowns, but bad, two bad interceptions. Daniel Jones was just, I mean, awful. And again, they just... <laughs> <laughs> Every defensive line, the Dolphins had six sacks on Daniel Jones. I mean, he's never going to make it through the rest of the year. With the, it's like ten sacks, six sacks, eight sacks. Well, that did happen. I mean, he got injured late in the game. Playing behind this offensive line, I don't think any quarterback could succeed. But surely he's not doing anything to help his case. But he's going to be out a couple of weeks. This is a neck injury. They're saying it's not as bad as his last neck injury, which was season-ending. So, I mean, Caleb Williams' tankathon is kind of on in, in New York City. If I'm the Giants. There's, there's no incentive to win at this point. They, they need a lot of, of stuff, too. And now without your quarterback for a month or six weeks, yeah, good luck with I that. I think how much excitement. The thing about the Giants is, like, I was in the Hamptons this week, this summer, and I think, like, a dozen people came up to me, like, oh, I'm so excited for the Giants this year. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it, it was like, it was this. Jets fans, too. New York was bustling <laughs> this, this excessive summer. enthusiasm. Like, what do they call it when you have the stock market, when you are whatever. There's some term for this type of enthusiasm when you overbuy a, a stock or whatever. And it just seemed like, I don't know. Like. 
Like, I don't know really why you guys are so excited. But, you know, and then there's also this question of you rushing Saquon back, even though he's only a one-year deal anyway. So it's just they're a mess. And I think the Giants, I, right now, if you're a Jets, the Jets have two wins and the Giants have one. So you're just more excited. And, you, and you've, I think from a Giants perspective, right, they look like a team that's going to have the worst record in the league. Moving on to Baltimore and Pittsburgh, and obviously you, you're a huge Steelers fan. Congratulations on a nice win here, though. We were talking off air, though. It's interesting, going into the season, Baltimore was put in that upper echelon of AFC teams, and you came in today ready to just unleash on who the Baltimore Ravens are because this is not a top-end football team. I have never. It was one. This is one of the weirdest football games. If you didn't watch the game, the Steelers won 17-10. If you didn't, if you if you had not watched the game, you would not. The Steelers were destroyed. This game should have been thirty-five <laughs> to nothing. I have never seen. Go out to the local, like watch the fifth and sixth graders play. They're going to see better catches. I cannot believe what. The, the Nelson Aguilar for the Philadelphia he, for the Ravens, but he played for the Eagles. Was a, has a reputation for dropping balls. I mean, the point is that there was uh, the greatest story I've ever had. Was someone said if there a fire in Philly, a firefighter caught there was a kid. They threw a kid out of a house of a burning ca- house, and the firefighter caught the kid. And they said, "What do you think when you caught the kid?" He goes, "Well, I didn't want to be. I go, I'm a better receiver than Nelson Aguilar is." <laughs> so that point, but I'm like, he dropped balls, but Rashard Bateman dropped a ball, yeah. and and flowers, uh, flowers. It, like. It, but these are not just like all tough, like they're just total in the hands. Yeah. And I heard the, today they were talking about on Get Up that they were practicing before the game with a rugby ball. And if you notice, they were rugby, it's like, why are you throwing a rugby ball? Because they're bigger. And it looks like every time the receivers had their hands up, that's why it went right through. It's like they wanted to teach them to catch with two point, hands. Andrew said when go through his hands in the end zone too. It was unbelievable. And so it was like, you know, the Steelers went three and out. Ravens were up seven, nothing. And then the first, in the first quarter, first downs, the Ravens had nine first downs. The Steelers had one. The yards was 150 to 20. The fans at the, are booing for Matt Cannon, a fire cannon you could hear on the things, but the Ravens kept dropping the ball. Finally, the Steelers got a field goal, made a 10-3, and Baltimore went then on, four. they went fourth down, it was fourth and two on the 23. They're up 10-3. The Steelers are incompetent, they're inept, they're everything, they can't score. Why in the world would you go? Go for a touchdown. Just kick the kick the field goal and go up 13-3. Harbaugh is one in six in the last seven times against Tomlin. You can see why. Like, this makes no sense. None of it made sense. So it's 10-3 at the end of the first half. It's, at that point, they had 275 yards to 97 for the Steelers, and they're only up 10-3. And then even the middle of the third, they're still up 10-3. Steelers cannot do anything on offense, and the Ravens keep dropping the balls. Like, they counted, like, 10 drops, like, total drops. And then it was like, then the Steelers blocked a punt. They got a safety in the men's zone, made a 10-5. And then they threw a grid pass, made a 10-8 with a field goal. They stopped the Ravens. So the Steelers, like, all of excited that Steelers, they stopped the Ravens, they're going to get the ball back. The Ravens punt, and the Steelers fumbled the punt, returning the punt. The Ravens get the ball on like the five yard line. So they're up 10 8 with the ball on the five yard line with a 99 point. Only the doll, the Hurricanes had a worse <laughs> chance to win this game. And what do they do? What is Instead of just sitting on the ball, Lamar Jackson throws it and picks an, an interception in the end zone to Joey Porter Jr. Like, what are you even throwing that ball for? Just go up 13 3. The Steelers cannot score a touchdown. Like, what are you even thinking? And he throws the interception. And then what happens? The Steelers get the ball back. They go down, make an amazing score 14 10. Absolutely. Because the one thing with the NFL is a team could be inept the entire game, but they still, when they have four downs and it's chaos at the end of the game, they can score. It's what you learn from college, pro, anything when you watch football. And I'm like, they're going to win. I knew once they stopped in there. And Lamar Jackson, terrible performance. His receivers, terrible. Harbaugh, terrible. The Baltimore Raven defense. Raheem Smith, awesome defense. Patrick Queen, amazing. Like, their defense is great. I felt so bad for their defense. They played a perfect game and blew that game. But as a Steelers fan, I'm happy. And that's what the Steelers did. Three and two. They're, they, they're not 
now three and two, and, and Baltimore's three and two, but just a just a crazy, crazy, crazy win for the Steelers. I don't know if Lamar had a had a terrible game. I mean, stat-wise, yes, but watching the game, there were so many snaps where you could tell Lamar didn't want to run. He was trying to stay in the pocket, make a move. Wait, he's either the Steelers' defensive backs were doing a fantastic job, or nobody was getting open for the for the Ravens. Well, in the first half, were, everything I think he was a, catch it. I think he was so afraid to throw it because they were dropping the balls. So like and he, what, you had to watch the game to see it. But there were plays where like where uh, uh, Flowers was down like the sideline, and like he threw it, and it was right there. And all we had to do was like it wasn't even a hard catch. Like the Steelers' defense was nowhere. But I just think it just must unnerved him to see the drop ball after drop ball after drop balls I have never seen even in the end zone like where they just the drops in the end zones like just throw right to him right you said right through Andrew's hands like people they normally catch the ball the play calling was everything was messed up I, it's it was a good win hey look the Steelers have won these games against the Browns and the Ravens which are just these crazy victories and that's sort of how you do it if you want to that's how Mike Tomlin gets these you know plus 500 records he does coach well in games when the coaches you know throw these games away and give it to him yeah exactly his team usually won't make the mistake to lose the game Let's talk about Philly and the Rams here. And congratulations to Philly on a, on a, on a win, 23-14, NFC matchup. you got to win these. But my takeaway from this game is the Rams remind me a little bit of Tampa Bay. Maybe it's because Tampa Bay has the quarterback that they were using last year. But my point being, they're not going to be an easy out for anyone. They may not have as much talent as you, but they're not going to go down easy. And Philadelphia was at, at a point where they could have lost this game at the end. Regardless, you have to win the games, and they did that. I'm really starting to like Philadelphia. Though. I know you I, love them. I don't see it. I, I I see it. I'm telling you, I, I look at the Rams, and I'm thinking, maybe not the Rams are better. They have Cooper Cup came back. He looked like Cooper Cup. He had eight catches for 118 yards. Puka Nakua, who's the best rookie I've ever seen, had seven catches for 71 yards. It's 17-14 at halftime. And then the Eagles at the end just— they are the, they're like 49ers Eagles. I'm telling you, when they whoever they play after they play each other on December 3rd, bet the other team because they just pummeled the Rams. Like they are Jalen Carter, their defensive lineman from Georgia. He is so big, so strong, and they just they're, and but both sides of the ball, so the offense and defense. Their offensive line, they, there was a picture of uh, Jason Kelsey, which is Travis's Taylor Swift's uh, whatever bro, boyfriend's <laughs> ex brother, the son of his brother-in-law, and he was so mad. Like on one of the plays, they had to delay a game penalty. Like they are so. And when they run the the push, the the brotherly push where they just brotherly push him, shove, brotherly yeah. shove, he is, it hurts. It's just amazing with that getting it in. He's so strong. Like if you see, you're like, how, why can't other teams do it? Because he he squats 600 pounds. Like he is, watch Jalen Hurts, one of the strongest quarterbacks that's ever been a quarterback, maybe the strongest of all time. So they're able to do that. But it was just, and A.J. Brown is really oh, open and catching and everything. But I was impressed. No, I, I, I thought it was one of these games where the Eagles, though, how about on third down? They were 13 for 18. And time possession was 38 minutes to 22 minutes. They just wear you down. They wear you down, and they did do exactly what San Francisco does. And uh, I just can't wait for. I mean, this December 3rd, I have to wait for that game. But I, I just can't see either team losing because. And I just like how Hurts plays, and I just think he's more accurate in his passing. Um, and that was really. Imp I'm really impressed with Philadelphia. But you're right. I think the Rams. People thought the Rams were going to tank, but they look with Nakua and Cup and Atwell and Kyron Williams as a running back. They have an explosive offense. Seven. 26. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Follow anywhere across social media at Ira on Sports. Kansas City, Minnesota. And Patrick Mahomes, this team is, is like, they're like a cat playing with a mouse that, that's dying constantly. They just toy with it. And through the first half, you're looking at Patrick Mahomes like, what's wrong with this guy? Then when they just need to flip a switch and win the game, they, they do. I mean, it's 
really, if I was a Chiefs fan, I wouldn't like watching this. I mean, they're great. They win Super Bowls. But I want you to win these games by 30. Minnesota's defense stinks. But sure enough, it's a one-score game here. He wins a win. Congratulations to KC. If Patrick Mahomes, he's, he's the best player in the NFL. He's so, I mean, good. He, he's so good. And you watch her and how he runs around. And you watch quarterbacks. And I said, you, you watch every day. And then you watch seem like the 49ers, like Khabib. And you watch someone like Mahomes. And his ability to get out of the pocket. His ability to find receivers. He threw it to he threw Kelsey. Had a, Kelsey got hurt in the game. People thought he like tore his Achilles. He's limping around. Everyone's all nervous. He comes back. Then he catches a touchdown pass. But Mahomes threw to 10 different wide receivers. 10 different ones. And he threw such a perfect pass that they all can catch the ball. Like, I think if he actually went to the Ravens, they might actually catch the ball. <laughs> but he's just, his feel for the game, his knowledge of the game, his, his ability. And, it, and Minnesota's a good team. And I feel sorry. They just keep losing these one-score games. But you're right. Mahomes had almost 300 yards, two touchdowns, uh, no interceptions. But, uh, but one of these things where the Chiefs now, the AFC is, it, it, every time you're watching the AFC, it's like the AFC gets weaker and weaker every week. They're, the teams, no one looks good. And Kansas City's like, okay, well, it's just Kansas City and Miami are the two best teams. Maybe Buffalo and Buffalo with their injuries. So you have those things. But it's it's like, wow, the KC should be happy that they're not in the NFC having to play San Francisco or Philly. KC normally known for its offense, but they've been playing pretty good defense Very this year. Good, yes. And they shut Justin Jefferson completely down. He ends up getting hurt towards the end of the fourth quarter. They're thinking this could be a multi-week hamstring issue. Listen, yeah, Justin Jefferson owners. That's me. I'm a Justin yeah, Jefferson. They're not happy right now in fantasy, but it was non-contact. Didn't look good. I could definitely see them being down for a little bit. As he goes, this team's going to go, and Minnesota could lose every game while he's not playing. London, back-to-back weeks for Jacksonville. They're a home team playing in England. Congratulations on beating the Bills. The Bills were on this streak, Ira, where we're seeing them beat the pants off people. And they're trying to show, oh, you guys think this is the Dolphins division? We're here to play. Jacksonville was there to play. And maybe it helps that they stayed there, you know, in the off week and Buffalo just flew in. But again, these are like home games for Jacksonville and they played really hard. Well, that's people forget. Jacksonville played last week and in, in, yeah, they just so they stayed, stayed there. Yeah. They stayed all week. And yeah, this is the Jacksonville team that everybody thought was going to be. Travis Entienne had uh, 26 carries, 128 yards, two touchdowns. Trevor Lawrence, 315 yards, one touchdown. Like, this is the team. You had Calvin Ripley. You had Curtis uh, uh, Christian Kirk. And it, this they play great. Their defense played great. And a big win. I'll tell you what. That's This is the Jacksonville team that I think is going to be in the playoffs. This is And, again, those first couple of losses in the team, they, they look bad. They finally turned it around. And, uh, no, I was – this is – this is like this is who I thought they were, and they played exactly that way. Big win for Jacksonville. It, it took them a little while last year too to get into form. They were a much better team week seventeen, eighteen going into the playoffs than they were week one, two, three, four. So maybe this is just kind of how Trevor Lawrence and these guys go. Uh, but and it's a bad loss for Buffalo because they lost. It now looks like Matt Milano, their linebacker, who is phenomenal for them, is out. Tackle machine. And, and and for him to be hurt, and now another way they had to cut two more injuries on defense, and sort of what happened last year when they kept getting these injuries, and these are key defensive injuries, and you're starting to think doubt whether Josh Allen could pull this out even after that big win. I, get, I think the win over Miami, I mean, it was tough. You beat Miami and they have to fly to England. I think there is that type of, you know, just emotional. I give every team a pass on a, on a, That's what on you a said. longer loss. I give every team a pass because it's not ready for it. Maybe the jet lag, you know, who knows. I don't know what to make of Bill Belichick and the way this, to me, is kind of tarnishing his legacy, the way he's going out right now. New Orleans, we've seen, this is not a very good team. They destroyed New England. This is like we're getting back to back to back weeks where it's, oh, well, this is the new worst loss of Bill Belichick's career. It looks really bad. And, and I don't think it's going to be crazy if we don't see him coaching the Patriots next year.
I, I won't say that, but there's something... I think he'll resign, or a Robert Kraft will tell him to resign type of thing. This was at home. It was the worst loss they've ever had. They had eight for, They lost 34 nothing to New Orleans. They had eight first downs the whole game. On third down conversions, one for 14. They had only had 150 yards. They had the ball for 20 minutes. Mac Jones was another horrendous game, 100 yards, two interceptions. Um, now they, they haven't even scored 20 points all year, and it's just a complete mess. You know, they're one and four. But if there's anybody who can turn around, it, it, it's just it's just surprising. And again, when when Brady left, I, I get back to this. I I think it it's there's something I'm going to say this. I think there's karma. I really think there's karma. I think you had Tom Brady. I think you run with him. You stick with him. You let him be the quarterback till the end. And I think they almost felt like when you read all the books and all the sex, what they're saying, and all the authors we've had on this about this, about how Brady felt like he was forced out and Belichick wanted to go a different direction. I think there is that karma because you can see, I'm not saying Brady was the player, but when you saw when he went to Tampa and what he's able to do and the magic dust he puts around a team, I think it's more important. I think that Belichick just, I think he underestimated the, this might sound absolutely insane. I think he underestimated the value that having Tom Brady in your football team is. I really think he that's thought a, he was the mastermind of all this. And he was. But now when you don't have that guy in the room anymore and you're not good at this, it kind of says a little bit. You're right, though. He's, he's overconfident. Right. And I think not realizing when Tom Brady goes to Tampa and Tampa Arians in a mess and the players and you saw them and he comes in, he can win the Super Bowl. And you're like, when when he left, I'm like, who's going to be win this out? I go, well, Tom Brady can't play till he's 50 years old. Like he has, he's only a couple of years to do anything. He's going to a fairly bad team in Tampa. Da, da, da. Like everyone thought that Belichick was ever going to get the win of this Belichick Brady debate. And really Brady winning the Super Bowl, then going to the playoffs the next two years, having good chances to go to the Super Bowl. But then Belichick having this is just, un- I mean, this, I would have never predicted that I mean the worst the 500 team but to not even be able to now in the playoffs what three or four years this is really poor and 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 how they looked and they're getting blown out week after week I mean they just it's horrendous we do have uh, Jean-Jacques Taylor on the line we'll get to him in one second but Ira mark your calendar November 28th week 12 Giants Patriots this could be the worst offensive game <laughs> in the history of the NFL and I'm here for it Jean-Jacques Taylor joins us here on Iron Sports appreciate your time Jean-Jacques Hey, Ira, how's it going, man? It's going very good. So you're the former sports columnist of the Dallas Morning News. You just wrote a book that's coming out this week called Coach Prime on uh, Deion Sanders. So uh, it's so exciting. What a timely book. And, and you wrote this last year when he was at Jackson State, embedded in the program. You didn't know he was going to go to Colorado and become this. Well, he was pretty popular when he was at Jackson State, but not with the, the, the enthusiasm that we've seen this past year. Um. That's absolutely right. We were just fascinated by uh, what he was doing at Jackson State, and uh, to me, that alone was uh, was um, worthy of, of picking up my life in Dallas and moving to Jackson for six months. If you can imagine that. Well, when you cover and uh, spending time with the program, and uh, as I like to say, and I told him, I've been covering the NFL since 1995. I'm very familiar with football, but when you get inside a program. Or inside a team, you're like, wow, there's a trillion things going on that I had no idea about. And I thought I knew quite a bit. Right. Well, you have covered uh, Dion when he was in, in at, the, at the Cowboys. And for maybe our listeners who didn't actually see Dion or Coach Prime play, well, he was Dion then, now he's Coach Prime now. But back, describe a little about what an impact player he was. I mean, he was voted one of the top 75 greatest athletes of all time, first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, describe about like what he was uh, as a player. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because he pretty much – the term shut down corner, which we use all the time now, was pretty much created because of him. 
because when he put you, when they put Dion on you, you just didn't throw to that side of the field because uh, it wasn't worth the risk. Because might only might he not intercept it, he might take it back uh, for a touchdown because he's so electric with the ball in his hands. But the thing I tell people all the time when I'm talking about Dion is, yeah, he's a fantastic athlete. Ran four two something. 6'1", 195, which is big for a corner, especially with that kind of speed. But Dane, the reason it meant he was a great player was uh, he had incredible work ethic. When I'm talking about incredible work ethic, uh, you know, he says it all the time now to his players. You know, I, I practice, I made practice like a game so that the game would be like practice. And so the legendary battles between him and Michael Irvin and him and Jerry Rice at practice when he played with those respective teams is um, – all part of his lore. And when I say he was a student of the game, almost all of us remember the touchdown against the Falcons where he went like 94 yards down the sideline. And at the end of the game, he's like, this is my house. This will always be my house. Well, that play that he scored on in preparation for the game, he called former Atlanta Falcons receiver Michael Haynes and said, hey, tell me what you're doing on offense. Blase, blase. Got it, got it got all the information he needed. He did his film study. And then early in the game, he saw them run a formation. And he said, if I see this formation, they're probably going to throw it to Ryzen on this route. They did that. And so he said, I'm going to let him catch it. They did it later in the game. And he said, okay, I've seen it twice now. I'm going to let him catch this one too. <laughs> and then he said to himself, if they come back to it because they've had success, they're going to come back to it later. And then I'm going to go get it. And that's exactly what happened. That play in the game. Formation comes up, broke on the ball, took it to the house, talked to the sideline all the way down the field. And it was all a product of the work that he did during the week that led to that interception and the big play that we all talk about now. Now, your book goes into detail. First of all, he was a high school coach, prime prep, AAA Academy, Trinity Christian. And the decision of Jackson State to hire him with no college experience, not been an assistant, but to go to an HBCU um, at Jackson State. That was it. You talked about the decision that came into like, well, this is our chance to to bring Coach Prime into a program that has like four Hall of Fame. Uh, Walter Payton went there to Jackson State. They had won a lot of titles, but over the last couple of years, uh, fallen on hard times. Well, yeah, I think it was a situation, where, and, and I talk about it in terms of they needed him and he needed them. Um, <laughs> he's not a guy who can be really an assistant coach because he's a, he's a guy who's a leader, he's a guy who's in charge, and he just decided, man. And you know, I think that I think that rubs people the wrong way. Like, who do you think you are that you don't have to be an assistant? And if you look at it like this, man, I told the kid I was mentoring uh, this summer. I shouldn't call him a kid. He's like his mid-20s. And he was saying, well, I want to do this, but they say I shouldn't do this, and, you know, they say this. And finally I said, who the hell is they? And he said, well, you know, people. I said, no, like, literally, who is they and who are people? Because if you can't put a name to it, who cares? Um, just do what you're going to do and be bold in, in the decisions that you want to make and, and go attack it. And go attack it. I said, when I was a kid... Everybody says you're supposed to start at a very small newspaper and work your way up to a big market. I said, I don't like that idea. So I started at Dallas Morning News and stayed there for the first 20 years of my career and was the first intern to ever become a general columnist. And it's because I didn't care about they. And so Dion kind of takes the same approach in terms of he doesn't care about they. Um, they said he shouldn't play baseball and football, you know, so he doesn't really care. 
And so he just kept hunting and working and searching for a situation until he found a good fit. And Jackson State was a good fit. They needed him. He needed them. And you talk about his son, about Shador Sanders and coming to the program and the relationship that Dion has with Shador. We see it this year. It's out in the open, but, it, you know, they, he's been his coaching his entire life as Shador. So talk about sort of when in the book, you know, what you explained about that relationship and how he's developed Shador into someone who people now is going to believe will be a starting quarterback in the NFL. It's not just Shador. You got to understand, you know, Dion grew up in a single parent household until, uh, I mean, his dad was in and out of his life, but uh, until his mom got remarried when he was about nine. So he was a latchkey kid, came home, took care of himself. Now, this was before microwaves, so your mama be been on the top of the stove, and you got to warm it up in the oven. So that's how he grew up. And so fatherhood was very important to him. You got to understand, he got five kids. He's got Shadur, who's the quarterback. He's got Shiloh, who's the safety. He's got... Bucky, who's uh, that's his nickname, Dion Jr., who does all his media stuff regarding the team. And then he's got uh, Bossy Shalomi, who plays basketball in Colorado. Four of his five kids are with him in Colorado. So fatherhood is very important to him. Uh, he has individual dinners with uh, the three youngest ones on a weekly basis. Like He, he, has, uh, he has a meal with Shadur every Sunday. I'm not sure what day he hooks up with Shiloh. He has one with Bossy, and so... All of that is very important to him. It's not just uh, it's not just being a coach. It's being a father, and it's being present in their lives uh, in a way that his fathers weren't. And we talk about in the book. You go into detail. It's like when you look at Dion, you're like, "There's the diamonds and the this and the that and the music." But he is a very disciplined coach. Like if so you walk in and you have an earring in a meeting, you're out. If you have the cell phone goes up, you're out. Like it's like you. He's a. It's a. It's somewhat a contradiction. But in terms of the fact that he is extremely runs a very disciplined program, but uh, but does give his players a lot of freedom. Well, he he only has a few rules, but his few rules are unyielding. <laughs> And you got to understand that uh, he's a product of all his coaches were like many Nick Sabans, whether it's Dave Cable, who coached him in youth football, that's Fort Myers Rebels, or if you're talking about Ron Hoover, who coached him in high school, or if you're talking about Mickey Andrews, who coached him at uh, as a defensive back at Florida State, they were all hard asses. And so that's the persona that he took on, and that discipline made him a better player. And so he took that discipline into every facet of his life. He's really probably the most disciplined person I know. And so he, he brings that to his players. And so he tells them, I'll never be more than 15 minutes early to the meeting, but when I show up, the meeting begins. So if I was you, I would get there 15 minutes early. Then you can never be late. But he doesn't do anything that he doesn't do for himself. Um, I've been out with him at a few times. Whatever event he's at, he's always 20 to 30 minutes early. And so he's teaching these kids the same thing. The values that are important to him, he's passing on to them. And so a lot of people get caught up in the flash and the confidence and the swagger, and they lose sight or they don't know that, you know, he he, he runs a Nick Saban-like program, and he's very disciplined, and he demands that his players are disciplined. Um, Aubrey Miller was the SWAC defensive player of the year at Jackson State last year. Well, he benched him for more than a quarter because he had a personal foul. He's like, it's a dirty play. We don't play like that. Take a seat on the bench and watch. Uh, he benched his son, Shiloh, for the SWAC championship game because he was late to a meeting in the building but wasn't seated in his seat when the meeting began. So he benched him for that game. So he benched an all-conference linebacker, Niles Gaddy, for the SWAC championship game because he, he was late to two team meetings in one week 
so he didn't play in the SWAC championship game. Could have helped him. Uh, so he doesn't have a lot of rules, but the rules he has, he enforces. And you talk about in the book about the excitement. Now you were embedded in the program. You had first year was the was the uh, COVID year, which was a mess, and then he, of course the second year, and then the third year, which is his final year at Jackson. And all the media and all everything we're seeing in Colorado, you saw in Jackson in terms of you know if game day came there, and you wrote that whole story about when game day was there and all the excitement and the enthusiasm that he brought to a program in in Jackson, Mississippi. That it, it is you know it, a town that is has its struggles with the water and everything, but really just brought a lot of pride back to the city. Yeah, he did. it was a city that uh, needed hope, needed a respite from all it was going through. And uh, for a two-and-a-half-year period, he provided that. Um, you know, because the city, is, uh, it's got some good aspects to it, but the city in general goes through some hard times on a regular basis. A lot of poverty there. And so the football team is the state's team because they don't have anything else, uh, especially for black folks there. And so it's a big deal. And uh, he contributed quite a bit to the community. And by the same token, that's why there's a lot of bitterness when he left, because it's like, this was great for us. We loved having you here. Why did you leave us? <laughs> and so, I mean, it's like, but, you know, in a lot of relationships, it's as painful as a breakup may be. Did I leave you better off than I found you? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, you have to say, hey, the relationship had some merit. It was good. It was just time for it to end. I just loved in your book, and I was... I felt, you know, you talked about it. There was a theory theme that he was struggling with the president, dealing with the president of Jackson and, and that he would probably exit state and that he was looking at other programs. And when Auburn fa- fired Brian Harson, Cadillac Williams was hired. And then you had Bo Jackson and Charles Barkley come out for Dion to go to Auburn. I felt he was a perfect match for Auburn, and I thought that was the program, not Nebraska, whatever. And, and I was just shocked that he did not go, that, that it did not work out to go to Auburn. What, what's, what's your feeling about the situation and why he ended yeah, up choosing Colorado? Most folks thought, that most folks in the building who had a little bit thought he was, thought Auburn made sense. Auburn would be a really good fit, not just from a football perspective, but also, you know, Deion's an outdoorsman. He loves to fish. Um, he loves to be one in nature. And so the Auburn community, he can find a kind of place where he likes to be, which is out on a hundred acres somewhere with a big old house and a big old <laughs> lake where he can go fish. Uh, so it made good from a cultural first fit for him as well. But uh, I don't think that really got any traction at Auburn really in terms of the people who are the powers that be. And uh, ultimately uh, somebody called him and told him and said, Hey, uh, Colorado will probably be calling you. Uh, don't dismiss them right away uh, because their AD really wants to win and there's a good chance they'll kind of let you do whatever you want to do. And so just pay attention to them. Just, you know, just don't dismiss them because they're, they're Colorado. Right. And um, ultimately, uh, Colorado made the pitch and basically told them just that. You can build the program you want to build and we'll get out of your way and let you do it. And that to him was appealing because here's the deal, man. And there's nothing wrong with this. He ain't for everybody. And everybody is not for him. Um, He's a man who lacks patience. If he calls his athletic director and says, I need this done today, he really wants it done today, not a couple days when you get around to it. He wants it done today. And if not, he's calling you, asking you why it can't get done today. And, you know, so he's just not for everybody. He's really good at what he does. Uh, very organized, very detailed, meticulous, uh, almost to a fault. 
but that's how you get your things done. And again, if if you can get down with that, then it's all good. And if you can't, it'll be a match made in hell. <laughs> and we're talking to John Jocks Taylor. Um, his book, Coach Prime, is out like I think tomorrow. Um, so excited! Yes, and uh, I'll, you know, best of luck and everything on the book. I have just one, a couple, just two more questions. One is. In terms of talk about how he appeals and the tra- using the transfer portal and just getting players excited to the program. He had the number one transfer class. You can see all the recruits that, that are committing there. Just the, the enthusiasm and the use of social media. You go through in the book about everything. It's just, it's just amazing how he is creating this uh, empire, it seems like, in Colorado in just, a, just one year. One of the worst teams last year in football and now you know, very competitive this year. Uh, he's really used the same approach that he used at Jackson State, which is it's really genius, but it's not complicated. Mm-hmm. All these coaches, let's just talk about uh, Power Five, Group of Five coaches right now. What do 99% of them do? They close their program. You know, Lincoln Riley's mad because some reporter wrote about a story that two guys were talking about just before they sat down for their formal interview. He wants this guy suspended for two weeks. And you can't talk to our players unless, you know, unless we say so. And you can only talk to them right here. And Lincoln Corrales is not any different than 99% of these other coaches. They close their program. They either Maybe they don't let players talk. And so what does Dion do? He does the opposite. He opens up his program. He's available. Uh, he makes certain players available. But because of the way that they use social media, you know, every time they put a video out there, it's really a recruiting pitch. Hey, here's how I handle adversity. Here's how we handle the tough loss. Here's how I discipline my players. Here's how I, here's how I talk to my players. Here's how I start every meeting with a prayer. You know, uh, and so what he's doing is he's sending a message and he's controlling a narrative about Colorado football. It doesn't matter what I write or what anybody else writes. If you want to know what's going on with Colorado football, all you do is click on well-off <laughs> media or the pregame show or a couple other spots, and you can literally see for yourself what he's all about in the locker room after a game where he tells Cormani McClain, a top uh, top cornerback in the country, one of the top recruits, five-star recruit, hey, here's another kid. I've been on his butt. I'm going to keep my foot on his throat because I want the best for him. Hey, good job, man. I'm proud of you, but I'm going to be on you next week. <laughs> well, what parent doesn't want to see that? No, no, here's no. a five-star kid who didn't play the first three games because he wasn't studying film, he wasn't practicing well, and he missed a couple team meetings. And he said, until you change your behavior, you're not going to play. And if you want to hit the portal, well, hit the portal. I don't care because I want you to be a better person and a better man. And so that resonates with parents. And if you were a real player, it resonates with you because you know he knows what it takes to get to the league. Uh, and so all of that, in addition to the fact that you can meet your favorite rapper <laughs> and party with him before the game in the locker room, um, all of that is enticing the kids. You know, you got, you know, and I'm just using Nick Saban, who obviously is a great coach, but he's like, I don't know what this Twitter thing is and this Instagram, you know, this social, I don't really know about it. Well, where are the kids today? Where can you find kids of football playing age? You find them on Instagram, watching reels. Uh, and so Dion is on Instagram with his 2.9 million followers or whatever it is, and he meets kids where they're at, and that's appealing to them because they feel like he gets me. Even though he's my dad's age, even though he can be a disciplinarian, he can also tell me the difference between an NBA young boy 
and uh, and Dirk, and who knows? Maybe they'll both be at a game. Right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you do. I hope your book is fantastic. I read it through over last night, over the weekend. And uh, if it's really an insight, you know, it's, I think it's a great book for high school kids because you can you go in and talk to so many of the players. I mean, and you're embedded in the program and you're getting their, their you know, feelings of what everything is and the good, the bad and, and all that. So I really enjoyed reading the book. Hey, thanks, man. That means a lot. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. 751, it's Iron Sports. <clears throat> True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. 4 nothing now. Bottom of the fifth. Zach Wheeler's uh, line against the Braves. 4.2 innings pitched. No earned, no walks, 8 Ks. So looking pretty good in uh, well, for Philly in, in uh, Atlanta. We're pretty much shot here on NFL right now. We've got about nine minutes to go. Tonight's game, Green Bay taking on the Raiders. I don't know what to think of this game. I do think it's going to be ugly. If I had to bet, I would take Green Bay because I don't know so much about Garoppolo's health. Devontae's banged up. What are you thinking? I think the Raiders have lost three in a row. Um, I think, you know, this is one of the things where I think you'll be, I, I'm interested about the fan base. Green Bay travels. This is in oh, this is in Las Vegas. I expect the crowd to be over 50% Green oh, Bay yeah. fans. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> to me, it's, this is not an away game. I, I know a lot of Green Bay fans that they've been certain, like, this is, this is what the problem the Raiders are going to deal with is the fact is that you have all these fans. I mean, the ticket price for the game is like four to $500 just to get into it because these are all Packer fans that are like, we're going to this game. This is their Super Bowl. And I think you're going to see that's what thing the Raiders have to deal with is that they are really going to until the, you know it, these people want to come to Vegas for the weekend yeah not only did you move from another city so you have no <laughs> low local fan base anyway but everyone wants to celebrate and watch their team in Vegas what are we watching next week kind of a light slate for the NFL no I think the only big game I would say is would be uh, the game I might go to Lions at Bucks I think that's going to be an interesting game with the with the Bucks had the had the bye but you know Miami Carolina is playing Miami Miami's favored by 14 and I'll tell you one line just if bet the house 49ers at Browns the Browns are plus five the 49ers are going to win this game it should be 50. 15 points too. I, this is un- I, th- I think there's a typo with this line <laughs> like what in the who in, who how in the world do, do they think the Browns are going to shut their defense are going to shut down the 49ers that's insanity I run sports troll these channel 753 got about seven minutes to go here till we have to wrap it up still plenty to talk about the Red River rivalry Ira Texas and Oklahoma and we saw a lot of Texas hype Going into this game, Texas is going to be a And I gave it. I'm just part of the reason for it. I went to, the, to Austin for the game the week yeah, before. You are, but Oklahoma looked pretty darn good in this game Saturday. It was such an exciting game. 49 nothing. Texas won the last year. Um, this year, Brett Venables finally has his defense going right. And Dylan Gabriel, the quarterback for Oklahoma, who missed last year's game with a concussion. And I think it's he it, it just had to watch this game to see block punts, interceptions, fake punts, everything. It was just crazy at the end of the game. And Texas thought they had this one. They drove down. They had a 47-yard field goal by Brett Auburn, who I love the last name. I cannot believe that Brett Auburn did not go to Auburn. <laughs> They're up 30-27 to 27 with a minute left, and Dylan Gabriel drives. It's like the first one-score win that the uh, Sooners have won in like five years But in terms of like a coming back from come behind win. And Gabriel drove the team down, touchdown with 15 seconds left. What a game. Gabriel, uh, two, almost 300 yards and a touchdown. Quinn Ewers, the star for Texas, threw two interceptions. But uh, Ewers not only um, passed for 285, he also ran the ball for 113. 
the Big 12 is awful this year. It's one of the worst conferences. And I these two teams are probably going to meet again in the uh, Big 12 championship game in Jerry Jones Stadium, at AT&T Stadium, which is amazing. And so really, in many ways, this game, I thought this game had all that mattered. But if if Oklahoma has to go and then they beat Texas again, then they're going to go in the finals. But that this was a weird, this was a game that just, it was just fun to watch. Texas also beat Alabama on the road. So an uphill battle for Oklahoma. Right. Georgia Tech and Miami. And this, Ira, game, I think it's going to go down in infamy as one of the worst games for the University of Miami ever. Ever. They were favored by 19, and the fact that uh, Tyler Van Dyke threw three interceptions, the fact that this game was even close, it was 3 nothing at halftime, the team that Georgia Tech had lost a bowling green the week before. Um, I, Miami took the lead. It was, it was 17-17. Georgia Tech intercepted. and uh, But then Miami had the ball with 5.30 left in the game. They drive the ball down. The game's over. I have the game on my TV. I have it watching it but I'm watching the USC game and then I'm and I'm like and that was 17 nothing and for some reason I, I like I turned away for a second because it just looked like they got it was third down and five with uh, 33 seconds to go and all they did was kneel down they just kneeled down and there, there was nothing it was just run the play just kneel down victory formation and their handshakes and everything I look up like a two minutes later and Georgia's kicking an extra point and I'm like wait was this a highlight was this a game I looked at the score I'm like what happened Miami did not Christopher Mary Cristobal did not kneel he down. Refuses to kneel. He he ran a play. The running back fumbled the ball. George Tech gets the ball back with 25 seconds to go and goes down the field and scores a touchdown to win the game. And you're, this is the most. And then Cristobal's comment was, "I should have stepped in. Should have stepped in." The president, the athletic director, Dwayne Rock Johnson, says, "A Rod, <laughs> someone should have stepped in. The coach, you don't step in." And then I find that he did this when he was at. The, they're showing highlights here in Oregon. At Oregon against Stanford, the same situation where he all he had to do was I. Unbelievable. I mean, you make tens of millions of dollars to be a coach and you can't, you have all the staffing and the really, I, I just, it's unbelievable. It's the worst loss. And I can't believe all you have to do is do the victory formation and yield the ball down. That's all you have to do. There's not run a play. Every team in the league is trying to get to victory formation. You have it and you're running shotgun run plays. A shotgun run play. When, if, if you didn't know this was coming and then your team lined up in shotgun, throw your hat on the field, do something, run get out, a penalty. Run, get it doesn't penalty. matter. Just make sure they, all you have to do is kneel and they lost the game. Like I said, a game that'll live in infamy florida state however got a win and i mean they're not playing the greatest competition but they're moving up florida state's one of these things where they just keep winning these games they were up 22 nothing in the first quarter and like okay can you have an easy win no they let virginia tech in they were favored by 24 points they let virginia tech back it's a struggle troy ben, uh, trey benson ran for 200 yards or jordan travis 170 yards two touchdowns but again florida state just i've not seen them play all year beginning to end a great game but eventually look they keep winning and they're in the rank number five notre dame taking the Lost to a ranked team in Louisville. I'll give them that, but this is still you're expected to beat Louisville, right? And I think Louisville. This was huge for them. Jeff Brom came back to the program. The stadium was packed. They rushed the field. It was a tremendous win for them. They're undefeated now. They're six and zero. But I think that Brom coming back, you know, from Purdue, he he was a coach there. He was a Louisville quarterback. This was a big game. I had a lot of friends in Louisville. This was a big game for the city of Louisville. And that's what you look. You're Notre Dame. Now they play USC next week. So Notre Dame was you know riding high, undefeated. They had a tough loss against Ohio State. Now they have this loss, and then they beat Duke. It's tough. When you go to Notre Dame, you're playing a tough schedule, and this is what happens. UNC taking on Syracuse. Was this Drake May's coming out party? 450 yards, three touchdowns. Tez Walker, who was a star wide receiver, the transfer that they do go and play. The NCAA finally let him play. He looks like DK Metcalf out there. Looks North Carolina is, this is, yeah, May. This could be the game. And if Tez Walker gets in, we're going to see. They play Miami next week, so it's gonna, that'll be a good, that's going to be a great game. Let's see if they can blow out Miami. Georgia continues uh, devastating people. 
Georgia has did not look great this year. They've heard about everyone's complaining about them. They were up 34-7 on the undefeated Kentucky Wildcats. Um, they had six first possession. They scored. Carson Beck threw for almost 400 yards, four touchdowns. And Brock Bowers, a tight end, seven catches, 132 yards. But short of a quarterback, I don't know what team would not want to have Brock Bowers on his team. He runs like a 4 3 He's 250 pounds. He is Kittles. He's Gronkowski. He's Travis Kelsey. He's better than all. He could be better than all of them. This He's one of the best recruits, I, best players I've ever seen. He will be a superstar in the league, but huge win. I mean, this Georgia's like saying, oh, you guys doubt us? We were, we're, we're real. We're real Georgia. Bama and Texas A&M ended up having a pretty close match here, but I think Bama may have figured out their QB issues, and they're going to go with Milrow. For, for the, Jason for Milrow, 300 yards, three touchdowns. And he found a wide receiver, Jermaine Burton. It seemed like he couldn't complete a pass to anyone but Burton. But Burton had 10 catches, 200 yards. And Texas A&M, Jimbo Fisher, mistake, bad coaching, all this stuff. But I'll tell you what, this is what I like. I'm starting to like about Nick Saban. I'm starting to like. He's one of the greatest coaches of all time. But he really is a good in-games coach because his teams now are not so dominating. But he lets the other coaches make mistakes. And this was a good win for him. They were two. They were only favored by two and a half in this game. But uh, but now Bama's five and a one. And they seem to be getting with Milrow if they can figure out something more. In terms of using his running, um, they're good. they they could be playing Georgia in the SEC championship game again. Only have about a minute left to go here. Any, any other games you want to highlight here before we have to wrap it up? Michigan blowing out Minnesota. That's another team for the Big Ten. Michigan looks fantastic. Ohio State beat Maryland thirty-seven to seventeen. They, line was twenty. They the just line was it. twenty, and they were just but they were just terrible. The first part, I mean, the game they were down ten nothing. They're struggling along. Um, they didn't play well. Ohio State to me does not look impressive. And then the Pac-12, I, just a great day. We. Colorado came back, beat Arizona. Shador Sanders sacked five times, but he had led them for a drive at the end. USC has to be one of the worst teams I've ever seen. I stayed up till two in the morning watching this game. Arizona, they were a 25-point favorite on Arizona. Arizona had a third-string quarterback who had never played before. It looked like he was uh, Joe Montana out there throwing the ball. They almost had this game won. It went into to overtime. It went to triple overtime where USC won. Pretty amazing. But And then Washington State, UCLA. UCLA, I mean, the Pac-12 was good. I thought Washington State, with Kansas, Ward a quarterback, but usually his defense shut him down. Big win for them. So, but I'll tell you what, next week is a weird week for, for football. The games to watch are USC at Notre Dame. You Notre Dame's a two and a half point favorite. So USC is undefeated and they're playing two last Notre Dame, but Notre Dame's a two-point favorite. Miami at North Carolina. North Carolina's only a three and a half point favorite. And the big, big game is is the is Oregon at Washington. Both undefeated, both fantastic. Bo Nix versus Michael Pettix Jr., Washington's favorite by two and a half. So I'm excited about next week's football too. What about uh, Formula One. Um, Max Verstappen won the title. No surprise. Yeah. So there's five races left that don't even matter because he's now won the entire title and uh, and because the Hamilton Russell crashed. But we'll see if Mercedes can come back next year. But there's still five more races to go in the season. WNBA has the uh, Las Vegas Aces taking on the New York Liberty with the Liberty's first chance to ever win a title. And the Aces won the first game. And of course, this is WNBA. Let's put the game. And this is actually both these teams are loaded with talent. They actually should be something that people would love to watch for WNBA. Let's put it at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon, right no in the sense. middle of the, and it makes no sense. It has to be the worst How can schedule. We cover the most NFL games. Yes, I think 3 a.m. <laughs> would be a better time slot than 3 p.m. I feel bad for them for the scheduling on that. That was bad. And then if we want to talk about soccer, I, I could someone please explain what's going on? <laughs> I because hate soccer. I, I love, I love I, Messi. I'm like, okay, well, they could be. I don't know if they're in the play. They're not in the playoffs. But now Messi has to go back to Argentina. They have this stupid schedules. Can they not have a season and play in the season and play their teams? They're supposed to. And these inner city things with this cup and that cup and this cup, why can't they just play a normal season? And now Messi's gone from Miami for months. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I want to thank so much to Jean-Jacques Taylor. He's Ira. I'm Mike. We'll talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.